Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a certified story grid editor, and I'm also a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a story grid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. This season on the show, we're doing a deep dive into Gone Girl, the whole season. Uh, Gone Girl is the 2012 novel by Gillian Flynn. And today we're looking at the ending payoff. It's pretty short. By my estimation, it's uh, only about 10 or 11% of the novel. Uh, so let me reread the ending payoff summary that uh, we did off the top of the season, just to remind you of what happens here. In the ending payoff, Amy eventually returns home. So the charges against Nick are dropped. When Amy announces that she's pregnant, Nick must decide whether he'll continue trying to prove that she's a sociopath or become the idyllic husband and father she wants him to be. He decides to do what Amy demands. So the five commandments of the ending payoff break down like this. The inciting incident is that Amy returns. The turning point progressive complication is, is that Amy announces she's pregnant and she really is pregnant this time. The crisis is, does Nick continue with his plan to make Amy pay or does he leave it alone and become the husband and father that Amy wants him to be? The climax is that he decides to become the husband and father that Amy demands. And the resolution is that Nick and Amy begin the rest of their life together, a future Nick describes as one long frightening climax. Leslie, what do you think about the ending payoff of Gone Girl? Well, I think it is fitting. Uh, <laughs> one long frightening climax. Um, the, what I think is really interesting about it is where the ending payoff fits in the bigger context of the story. So that's what I want to talk about today because the, it's... It is, you know, we've talked about this. It's so skillfully done, but I want to show you, we can feel that, right? When we read it, we can really feel this, the ending payoff and all of the threads being, well, not all of them, because we still kind of wonder how it's going to work out. It is a bit open-ended. So what I want to do is look at the first three quadrants to create some context for what's happening here in terms of the action that Nick is taking based on his current worldview, and then the response that he's getting from the environment. So in the beginning hook, we have what Sean calls the prima material, 
the protagonist is deciding whether to engage with the problem that is the inciting incident. They think they understand the nature of it, but they don't because they can't really see it. They're stuck in their worldview 1.0, which doesn't include the capacity to see what the problem is. So in Gone Girl, Nick learns that Amy is missing and he assumes that she's been taken. And so what he sees leads him to this conclusion because let's say he's wearing the wrong lenses, right? He needs a telescope maybe, and he's using a microscope. But what he, so the actions, right? The actions he takes based on what he believes is true causes him to be worse off at the end than he was when he first learned about this. And he does not know why that's the key. Okay, cool. So keep that in mind. So now in the second quadrant, as we talked about in the middle build one, the old worldview is being broken down. Sean calls this the solve, right? It's being dissolved. And the actions that Nick is taking aren't working, really aren't working. And he's bringing his best stuff, right? If we say Nick's strategy is turning on the charm, which includes a fair bit of lying to himself and others, the response he's getting back from the environment isn't what usually happens. And that is deeply frustrating, right? It creates this disconnect that makes him realize that he's not seeing the problem correctly. So all the clues are there. And we talked about that in the episode where we discussed middle build one, all the clues are there that could, if Nick were seeing the problem properly, he could figure it out, but he can't until he gets to the woodshed and then he gets it. Amy's gone, but she set him up for murder. So he is much, much worse off than he was before. So then the next quadrant, middle build two, is the heat, right? We've broken it down. Now we're adding pressure and heat. Nick's old worldview is gone, but he doesn't have anything to replace it with, right? He's, He's flying blind in a way. It's like when you come out of the theater, it's dark in the theater, and you come out in broad daylight, and you're like, not able to see very clearly. So he still doesn't know what the inciting incident means. And I talked about this last time that after middle build one, he makes sense of the inciting incident. Oh, she's setting me up for murder, but he doesn't know what that means in terms of what should I do then? So he's just trying a bunch of different stuff. Now the direct consequences of his actions that he's taken so far are coming home to roost in in the form of second and third order consequences. So he's gotta do something, otherwise he's gonna be executed. So he tries telling the truth of all things, right? To some people, 
He doesn't tell everyone, but he tells Tanner and he tells Go and he releases some truth to Rebecca, the uh, budding journalist, and he reveals some things to Sharon, right? So the other thing that we have happening in this quadrant is that all is lost moment when he does finally get what it means. And this gives rise to his worldview 2.0. So he can keep trying to defend himself or he can attempt to lure Amy out of hiding. He realizes he's got the, he's had the wrong audience, right? He's been talking to the police and then he's talking to the media, but he needs to talk to Amy. She's the key to solving the problem. Now it doesn't go well at first because the police are turning up the heat but he sticks with this strategy, even though he has no idea whether it's going to work or not. And the result, of course, is that Amy returns, which is a mixed blessing. So now we get to the ending payoff. And in this fourth quadrant, Sean calls this coagula. So things are coming back together. The worldview is coalescing. The protagonist is responding to the events as they happen using this new worldview 2.0. Now, what Nick realizes is he has to confront the real problem that landed him in his current circumstances. So his lack of engagement in the marriage and cheating caused Amy to set him up. But why? When he had Amy, did he wander, right? He admits Amy is the one who, who made me a better person, right? It's a spectrum. Um, but, but it made him try to take care of himself, right? He wasn't laying around in his underwear with the heat miser hair. So if he had Amy, why did this happen? Well, what he comes to learn is that he had a deep meaning deficit, that actually mirrored his father, even as he spent his entire life trying not to be like his father. And he comes to this when his father dies. And he says, I thought it would make me feel better to have the man vanished from the earth, but I actually felt a massive, frightening hollowness open up in my chest. I had spent my life comparing myself to my father and now he was gone and there was only Amy left to bat against. After the small, dusty, lonely service, I didn't leave with go. I went home with Amy and I clutched her to me. That's right. I went home with my wife. Right. She, he's holding on to her for dear life. Because some, having something to push against is the only way he's been finding meaning. So his father couldn't find joy and connection in being a father or in his work or in anything in his life. He didn't have a hobby either. He took revenge on his family. He gave into his shadow agency, let it take over because he couldn't find meaning in life in any positive you know, way 
according to a luminary agent, we would say. So Nick was on that road too. The very thing he feared. And this is what the this is the revelation of the ending payoff. He he's been blaming his lack of meaning on Amy, on the economy, the culture, anything but himself. He doesn't want to take personal responsibility for the path of his life. I mean, who does, right? But it's part of the process of maturing. You take responsibility. He's just playing the hand he's been dealt until this moment. So in and I could belabor this point, and I did kind of in my notes. So you'll get to see all of that in the show notes. But what's really interesting to me about this is that he's not living his life. He's not engaging his life. He's sleeping through it, has no purpose. So Amy woke him up by putting his life at risk. Now, she did it for her own selfish reasons. She's not this wonderful, altruistic being at all. But she was in a way saying, if your life means nothing to you, Nick, then I'll just go ahead and take it. Now, Nick finds purpose at last, not in revenge, not in killing Amy, but in protecting the child from her. So it's not super duper heroic, but it's something. It's not nothing. Let's just say that. So Valerie, what do you have on this amazing ending payoff? There's so much. I, I want to pick up first on a couple of things that you've just talked about. The ending here in this novel is not cut and dry. It's an ambiguous ending, I think, that opens itself or allows itself um, to be interpreted a number of different ways. Is it a positive ending? Is it a negative ending? Well, there's an argument that we can make for both, right? I mean, there's no going off into the sunset. There's no happily ever after. Um, we talked in uh, the, the episode that we did on the editor's six core questions, I touched on it just briefly. Before we even recorded that first episode, we were on the phone for a couple of hours talking about the theme. And our discussion of the theme led us into a discussion about what is damnation? What does it mean to have a fate worse than death? And it was i when i had first read it i thought that nick ended at a fate worse than death because i cannot imagine a worse scenario than to be forced to stay because he's in a best bad choice crisis situation right crisis question that's what he's doing do i do i stay with this crazy woman and hope i can manage her and keep my child safe or do i try to get away from her and hope I can get custody of the child and hope she won't uh, set me up to fail again like she did before because she's capable of anything. <laughs> right? So he decides to stay with her and try and manage her and keep his son safe. Okay, to me, that was a fate worse than death. 
no matter which one he chose, it was going to be a fate worse than death. And I, I thought, well, good on Gillian Flynn for coming up with two with, with two options that are both a fate worse than death. And then you and I started to talk about it, and we were trying to figure out what Nick's gift was. And we said that his gift is, you know, that his charm, how he's been able to manage people, how to, to get what he wants, and that's how he has moved through life. Well, when you have a cautionary tale, the protagonist fails to express their gift. Here, Nick is expressing his gift. That's exactly how he's going to survive this marriage, by managing Amy and by trying to keep her happy and by being the man she wants him to be, which secretly he wants to be as well. So for, so, so the question of damnation is not whether the reader considers the state damnation. It's not whether the writer considers the state damnation. It's whether the, the character, the protagonist considers the state damnation. And I think in this situation, Nick doesn't think he's damned. <laughs> he, he thinks he has been saved in an odd, messed up kind of way. Because for him, a fate worse than death is to be like his father. And he's on that path. We see it. It's very clear. When, he, uh, when Amy returns and he wants to strangle her, and he says it a couple of times, and he does even attempt it. That is his shadow side coming out, and his father uh, surrendered to his shadow side. Nick doesn't want to do that. He talks about, um, he, sa he says to Amy, you know, I want to marry a, a regular girl. And then he says, um, this is the night of the return. When, when, okay, it's in the chapter, Amy Elliott done the night of the return. She says, you're a man. You are an average, lazy, boring, cowardly, woman-fearing man. Without me, that's what you would have kept uh, on being ad nauseum, but I made you into something. You are the best man you, you've ever been with me, and you know it. The only time in your life you've ever liked yourself was pretending to be someone I might like. Without me, you're just your dad. I mean, this is, it, it's kind of like the scene from Marriage Story where their shadows come out and attack one another. Now in Marriage Story, I got the sense that these two really did love one another. They just couldn't be together anymore, and it was completely heartbreaking. These two, Amy and Nick, it's a whole different vibe <laughs> with these two. It's not Charlie and Nicole at all. But we said in a previous show that the, the antagonist has to have a point, right? And when, Nikki, when um, Amy is talking about the cool girl, She's right. She's absolutely right. Here, she's right again. And Nick really does know it. And it scares the bejeepers right out of him. The next scene, the next chapter is Nick Dunn, The Night of the Return. This is when he finally does try to choke her. Um, and he says that if he married a regular woman, 
as uh, he wanted to, that he would, you know, he was, he's going to find her lacking. Uh, and this is a quote from the book. Nick says, I already knew part of me would be looking at her. This is his new wife, hypothetical new wife, and thinking, you've never murdered for me. You've never framed me. You wouldn't even know how to begin to do what Amy did. You could never possibly care that much. The indulged mama, the indulged mama's boy in me wouldn't be able to find peace with this normal woman. And pretty soon she wouldn't be just normal. She'd be substandard. And then my father's voice, dumb bitch, would rise up and take it from there. Like, okay, Amy and Nick are totally made for each other. Let me just say that. Um, you know, they're, they're both a bit special. So, <laughs> so it's interesting when you look at endings and beginnings and how they rhyme. It's interesting when you consider this, this topic of damnation and what does it mean to be damned? Well, turning out like his father is Nick's definition of damnation. And he knows that being with Amy is the only thing that's going to save him. And this touches off something else you said a minute ago, Leslie. Um, the objects of desire, right? What Nick and Amy need is to be seen. That's what Amy wants. She wants Nick to know who she is. That's what all these treasure hunts are about. And Nick never gets it. He can never figure out the clues because he doesn't know his wife very well. He doesn't see her. It takes her framing him for murder <laughs> and putting him on death's row, right? Because there's, there's, uh, there's capital punishment in Missouri. That's what it takes for Nick to wake up and see his wife for who she is. And when he starts to play her game, which is what you were talking about, Leslie, he starts to talk directly to Amy through the media that Amy falls in love with him again and she gets all excited and, oh, he sees me. She is absolutely consciously aware that he is saying what she wants to hear, not what he really means. And that's okay with her. That's what she wants. At the same time, in the ending payoff here, Nick admits to himself that he really loved being seen by Amy. The notes that he, she left for him here in this uh, fifth anniversary treasure hunt, where she's stroking his ego and saying what a clever man he is and oh, how fabulous he is. He loved it. <laughs> you know, this whole thing where he would look at his, his hypothetical second wife and say, well, you've never murdered for me. <laughs> <laughs> so she couldn't possibly love Nick as much as Amy loves Nick. <laughs> she couldn't possibly want to be with Nick as badly as Amy wants to be with Nick. So any other wife would be substandard. She, she'd be second best. She couldn't possibly live up to amazing Amy right? It's, it's so good. It's so good. And so this is getting back to the beginning and ending rhyming, rhyming again. Now, this is a concept when 
um, Stephen Pressfield actually explained it to me the first time through one of his blog posts or his jabs. I can't remember where it came from. And he was talking about the ending and the pay, the, the beginning and the ending of um, a film rhyming. And often you would have uh, a scene repeated. And you can have a scene that is exactly repeated. In uh, Black Panther, it's exactly repeated. Uh, or you could have the protagonist facing the same um, turning point, the same crisis question, but answering it a different way because the, the, uh, he or she is a different person. And I thought, well, that's great. That's for film. But surely, surely, God, I haven't got to try and figure out how to do this in a novel. <laughs> but yep, yes, you do. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, Gillian Flynn does it really well. For example, she talks about, she has Nick rather talking about Amy's head. Uh, it opens with Nick saying, when I think of my wife, I think of her head. And then he describes what it looks like from the outside and he imagines what it looks like on the inside and all the coils and the thoughts shuttling through there. And it's, you know, what are you thinking, Amy? What will we do to each other? What have we done? That's the first three paragraphs. Now, if you go to the end of the book, um, we have uh, Nick again saying that he wants to choke her. The night she returns, he fantasizes about smashing her head in with a hammer and you know, making her pay and making her hurt. And then magically she would be better so he could do it all over again. It's really quite something. And the very last paragraph of the whole book. So the first paragraph of the book is Nick talking about Amy's head. The last paragraph of the book is Nick talking about Amy's head, right? Uh, the other morning I woke up next to her and I studied the back of her skull. I tried to read her thoughts. For once I didn't feel like I was staring into the sun. I'm rising to my wife's level of madness because I can feel her changing me again. I was a callow boy and then a man, good and bad. Now at last I'm the hero. <laughs> yes, bye. <laughs> I am the one to root for in this never ending war story of our marriage. It's a story I can live with. Hell, at this point, I can't imagine my story without Amy. She is my forever antagonist. So the beginning of the story, he's thinking at her, about her head, wondering what she's thinking. At the end, he's thinking about her head. He knows what she's thinking because he's rising to her level of madness. In the beginning of the story, he has got to psych himself up for the anniversary breakfast with her. In the end, like he, he, he can't get away from her fast enough in the beginning. The, the breakfast is obligatory. He's got to do it. And then he's out of there to Andy's house. And then he's out of there again to the bar with Go. He is avoiding Amy. In the end, he can't live without Amy. So he's, we've got a, a mirror in terms of the, the syntax, right? The actual words on the page and talking about Amy's heads and her thoughts. We also have a mirror in the way that Nick is facing the same situation of his marriage, but he's responding differently because by the end of the book, he's a different guy, or he's more aware of the guy he always was, uh, might be an, another way to put it. 
he can't get away from her in the beginning. In the end, he can't bear to be without her because he realizes without her, that's his, he becomes his father. She is forever his antagonist that he requires and that he needs in order to keep his inner antagonist, his inner shadow self at bay. And the last thing that I'll say about the ending is, of course, this is a thriller, so there's got to be a double ending, right? The first ending, Amy returns, and we see Nick uh, setting her up, trying to get, trying to bring Amy to justice. Well, that starts to go out the window when we read the interrogation that Amy actually does with the police. Not only does she have Nick over a barrel, she has the police over a barrel too. For the reader, at least for me, all hope was starting to be lost. <laughs> I thought, no, I am so programmed for a happy ending here. She has to be brought to justice. She can't get away with this. That creates narrative drive. Because you're, you're nearly at the end of the book. You, you don't want your reader to know how it ends. You've got to keep them guessing. You give them just enough information to string them along. The reader's on a need-to-know basis. When we find out that Amy has outsmarted the police, and again, she has a point, because they have jumped to conclusions. They were going to prosecute this man for a murder that was never committed. Incompetence in the police force or what? <laughs> right? So then you're wondering, how is it going to end? What's going to happen? We see Nick trying to work with Tanner and Boney to, to set her up somehow. And of course, the thing that was set up in the beginning hook comes back to be paid off. Um, Amy is pregnant because we found out in the beginning, uh, you know, about the, they were trying to, you know, she was going through IVF and all that kind of stuff that, um, you know, eggs were frozen and, and there was a letter that came, do they want to destroy the specimens? And, and Nick never gets around to that. We forget there's so much else going on in this book. We've forgotten all about that letter that, that Nick never got around to dealing with. It raises its ugly head in the end. Amy has impregnated herself with the samples that were taken. It is Nick's child. It's 100% Nick's child. She has won. Holy cow. What do you think of that, Leslie? It's, it's so amazing because Nick is, um, you know, he's done, he does it to himself, right? His failure to engage, his failure to be proactive and take care of things. He just left that letter for her to deal with. Anyway. Um, yeah. And it came back to bite him in the ass. It did <laughs> in a way, but right. It's also what he needs. Right? Yeah. He's go. he's headed on a one-way train to damnation, right? That's it. That's all that's available to him. Now, we wouldn't necessarily say, you, you make this point beautifully, we wouldn't necessarily say that 
he's going to have a deeply meaningful and fulfilling life, but it's going to be better than it would, would have been otherwise. And, you know, sometimes like we talked about in uh, murder on the Orient express, sometimes you're reaching for the best possible option, right? Well, this is the best justice we can have under the circumstances. So I think that's what he gets. Happily Ever After isn't on the table for these two. No. Pick your poison. (laughs) Yeah. So love the one you're with. (laughs) Old song goes. Sorry. All right. To wind up each episode, we uh, touch on our takeaways from um, from the story. So, Leslie, what is your takeaway um, from the ending payoff of Gone Girl? Well, you know, every story is a cautionary or prescriptive example of some type of storytelling concept, or actually many, right? And I've made no secret of the fact that I wasn't eager to do this story, but I have learned so much And it reminds me, one, that sometimes what you resist is exactly what you need. Nick Dunn, I'm looking at you. (laughs) Um, I don't enjoy spending time with the characters, but time with Gillian Flynn's creation has been amazing. So that reminds me that when we're reading as writers or editors, it's not always about what's pleasurable on the surface. It's also about what can we learn from this writer and this story. And for me, my key takeaway about the ending payoff is simply this, never take your foot off the gas pedal. It's really easy when we get to the end of our book, we're tired of writing the book. We're tired of these characters because we, by the time we get here, we may have already spent a couple of years with them. We just want the book to be done. We want it off our desk, send it to our editor, let our editor worry about it now. I won't do that to you, Leslie, I promise. Um, But what Gillian Flynn has done here is find multiple ways to make the ending payoff as interesting, as dynamic, as driven in terms of its narrative as any other part of this book. It's only 10 or 11%. She could easily have just tied up all the loose ends and put a big bow on it and sent us on our merry way. She chose not to do that. As a result, the story continues to pick up steam right to the very last page. It doesn't let up for for two seconds. It's keeping us guessing. It's keeping us on the edge of our seat. The ending is not clear, and that makes it more interesting. I mean, it's clear in terms of the facts of the matter. We know what is happening on the surface. We don't know if this is salvation or damnation. It's open to interpretation. It isn't the happily ever after, all loose ends tied up type of story that we, uh, in North America anyway, have come so used to seeing. 
And because of that, it's, it's a story that stays with you after you finish reading the book, makes you keep thinking, makes you keep wondering every now and again, going back and thinking, I wonder how Nick's doing. <laughs> it was 2012. It was eight years ago. You know, that kid's been born by now. Have they, Go calls them a nuclear family. Have they exploded yet? Ha, has the bomb gone off? Has he managed to keep her, uh, her craziness at bay? Has he gone off the deep end? So the, the key message for me here, the key takeaway is even though you're in the ending payoff, don't ease up on the narrative drive. Keep it going. Keep finding ways to plant questions in your reader's mind to keep driving the narrative forward, don't slow down. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you wanna become a better writer, you've gotta write and you've gotta read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash inner circle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.